two readings today, both from the book of Exodus. The first reading is from Exodus chapter 25. So we're starting at verse 8. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Let them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, that's about 110 centimetres, a cubic and a half wide, and a cubic and a half high, that's about 70 centimetres. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end, and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover, and place the cover on top of the ark, and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now, the second reading is from Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus, starting at verse 1 and reading it firstly to verse 8. 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. Place the Ark of the Covenant Law in it and shield the Ark from, with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law and put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Now can you go forward now please to verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar, and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard, and so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled 
the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. Thanks, John, very much indeed. There we've got an, an account, at least um, some of the beginning and the end of the account of the building of the first tabernacle in the Old Covenant. And I'm just going to read before we look at that uh, the privileges we have in these New Covenant days since Christ has come, has died, has risen, has ascended. So Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm just going to read 19 to 22. You can see them on the screen there. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Well, back to the end of Exodus, chapter 25, you might like to have open in front of you, page 83, which is the beginning of a long section at the end of the book of Exodus. We're coming to the end of our series now. And from chapters 25 to 31, Moses, up the mountain, is given detailed instructions of the tabernacle, the construction he must build, where the focal point of God's presence will be in the midst of the camp of the Israelites. So that's 25 to 31. And then from chapters 35 to 40, more detailed instructions as that design is actually built. There's too much there for us to read. But this video gives you a sense of the kind of construction that was being built. So let's have that played if we could. Here's a sense. There's the camp, and in the middle of the camp, there is a courtyard with a curtain all the way around it, and that courtyard separates the camp from the, the tabernacle. And you come towards the curtain, it opens up, you go into the courtyard, and there is the altar of burnt offering. There's some sacrifices offered. It's a bloody place because lamb was offered there morning and evening. It's the first thing you see. And then there's a laver. It was called a basin of water. Priests could only enter the holy place curtained and separated from the courtyard, having washed their feet and their hands. And a whole series of curtains cover the top of that tabernacle. It's one construction but it's in two parts. So if you, I keep saying, if you, of course, you would go nowhere near this place. Just the priests go in. And as they go in, the first thing they see there on the left-hand side is the golden lampstand, known as the menorah. And there's the bread on a table, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And there is an altar of incense evoking the presence of God permanently there. And before it, 
a great curtain with images of cherubim. Cherub um, are special creatures. Inside is the most holy place, and there is the ark with the ten commandments inside, and on top of the ark, a special lid. And here are these cherub, plural of cherub is cherubim. It's a bit confusing. And they are heavenly creatures. And they're on the lid, on top of the ark, the box, where the Ten Commandments were. And their wings are facing inwards. And we're told that those wings represent the, the, the atonement seat, the mercy seat, the atonement cover. It's where God reigns from. Just bear that in mind. And we'll come back and see some of those details in a moment. That's enough of the, the picture. I'm going to say a prayer. Lord, these are details that are alien to us. Help us to see the, the spiritual significance of these chapters, that we might delight more in what is on offer for us through Christ right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're fans of Downton Abbey. I used to love Downton Abbey every Sunday evening, long, busy day, switch off and return to the ancient world, early uh, late 19th, early 20th century, country house, and so on. And if you've seen the film, it's all about a royal visit. King George V and Queen Mary are going to Downton. And that is both very exciting. Think of the privilege of having the king and queen in your own house. It's also very daunting because it costs a lot of money. And the film begins with Earl Grantham saying, I think this could bankrupt us. Now, if it's a big thing to have a royal visit in the early 20th century, how much more in Elizabethan times? If Elizabeth I in Tudor times came to visit you, I'm told it could have cost up to, in today's terms, half a million pounds per day to have the Queen with her vast entourage. In fact, it could cost more than that, because if you really wanted the monarch to come in those days, you had to construct a special suite of rooms, because monarchs are set apart from normal people. So you'd have the, the anteroom, and then the drawing room, and then the bedchamber, and depending on your rank, you could get closer. So the, the gentleman of the bedroom, or the bedchamber, that's a very important person, because they can actually go into the inner sanctum of the monarch. Others would be out in the anteroom. And you get something of the same mood as we read about the construction of the tabernacle. This is a big deal. Because this is not just some human king or queen coming to visit. This is the living God, the creator of all. And he's coming to dwell amongst his people. And that is both very, very exciting. It's a huge privilege. It's also very, very daunting. We're coming now to the climax of the book. Let's have the next diagram on the screen. And here are the three pyramids. I'd always assumed that the Exodus, the book of Exodus, is all about the Exodus. But actually that just takes up the first 18 chapters where we read about the God who delivers. And he frees them from slavery in Egypt and they're set free from Pharaoh. But that's not the climax of the book. That gets us to Mount Sinai and then the next section, the God who delivers, 1 to 18, now the God who demands... God gives his Ten Commandments to the people and says, now that you are my people, this is how I want you to live your life. But even that is not the climax of the book of Exodus. As a very young Christian, eager to read the Bible, I said to an older Christian friend, I'm going to read the whole Bible. He said, he said, I suggest you start at the New Testament. 
I said, no, I'm going to start at the Old Testament. He said, you might struggle when you get to Leviticus. I didn't get that far before I struggled. It was this section that I really struggled in. We had a little detail, but actually six whole chapters of detailed instruction about the building of the tabernacle, and then another five, five chapters or so describing how those detailed instructions are put into action. Why does the narrative go slow? This is the climax of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle. Because the God who delivers, the God who demands, is the God who draws near. This is what it's all about. God coming to live amongst his people. I'm going to read chapter 25, 8 and 9, which zoom in, I think, on some key details which we'll expand on. God says to Moses, then let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So this is not going to be a lesson on ancient architecture. We're going to learn about God. We've seen this whole series in the book of Exodus. We've entitled it, Behold Your God. He's the God who draws near. That's the dwelling among them. I will dwell among them. He's the God, though, who also keeps his distance. And we're picking up on the word sanctuary there, which means holy place for a holy God. You can't get too close. But he's also the God who designs. We're picking up on those words. Make it like the pattern I will show you. God is designing not just this architecture. God is designing history. So first, the God who draws near. Verse 8, I will dwell among them. And do notice how the instructions begin. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, that's how it begins, God speaking. Here are some instructions. Moses, don't use your imagination. Follow these plans to the letter the Lord said to Moses. Five more times in chapters 30 and 31, those words are repeated. The Lord said to Moses. You've got six creative commands. And God said, and God said, and God said. And then the seventh time, what we find is God said to Moses, chapter 31, verses 12 and 13, rest on the seventh day. See what's going on here. Six creative commands. God said, God said, God said. And one command to rest. Now that is not coincidental, because if you know your Bible, it begins in Genesis chapter 1 with six creative commands. And God said, and God said, let there be light, and so on. And then the seventh command is a command to rest on the Sabbath day. That is too close a parallel for coincidence. God created everything. God created we human beings in his image to relate to him. And then he rested on the seventh day and he invites us to, as it were, live within his rest. It's not as if God's doing nothing after he's completed creation. Everything's perfect. And in Genesis chapter 2, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are invited, as it were, to live within the rest of God's creation, marked by perfect relationships, and above all, the perfect relationship between God and human beings. So there's no temple in the Garden of Eden. There's no tabernacle, because the whole place is a tabernacle. God dwells there with his people. But then, tragically, human beings rebel against God, 
and God banishes them from the garden. And from then on, there's a barrier between God and human beings. There's a barrier between heaven and earth. But God is very gracious. He makes a promise with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you again. And that promise is fulfilled as Abraham's descendants, although they're in slavery, God redeems them. And you remember chapter 19, when they get to Sinai, he tells them what he's done to the Egyptians, how I've carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I brought you back into relationship. You don't deserve it because of your rebellion against me, but I'm determined to restore relationship that you were made for and enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. And now God is coming to live with them again. To some degree at least, the tabernacle is a restoration of Eden. Chapter 25, verse 8, I will dwell among them. Well, 29, 45, and 46. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So let's have the next diagram, if if we may, please. Well, here's what we saw in, in more vibrant form in the video. There's a curtain around the outside of all this, which is the enclosing the courtyard, and... If you were a priest, because only a priest could do this, you'd walk into the courtyard, and there you would see the tabernacle straight ahead, a large tent in two sections. The first section is the so-called holy place, and there is the golden lampstand on your left. And that speaks of God's protection. The light's always shining, and God is always watching over his people, constantly guiding them. And there on the right is the table of the bread of the presence. And if the lampstand speaks of God's protection, this speaks of God's provision. And there is the bread. Reminder that God provided for his people in the wilderness, the manna. And there's the altar of incense just before the curtain. That speaks of God's presence. He's here in this place. Then there's a thick curtain. And on the curtain, there are images of cherubim embroidered. Why cherubim, these mysterious heavenly creatures? Where do they come from? Well, they come from Genesis 3, where we're told that guardians are placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. So once human beings have sinned, they're banished, and these cherubim are guarding the way back. So the cherubim, as it were, represent the presence of God. And you were banished from it. But here, amazingly, at least to some degree, there's a possibility of getting close to God again. The most holy place, which when the temple was built, which is the permanent structure that in time replaced this tent, this tabernacle, that was called the Holy of Holies. It's the equivalent of Eden, the focal point of the presence of God, a piece of heaven on earth. And in the most holy place, there's that ark. It's it's a box. It's a chest. It's the first thing described in Exodus 25 because it is absolutely the focal point of the presence of God on earth. Four feet long, two feet wide, two feet high. Inside the two tablets of the commandments. On top of it, this separate lid or cover with the the wings of the cherubim joining in the middle. 
And those wings are spread over the ark. And we read 25 verse 22. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. So this is the focal point. This is God's throne, if you like. The ark. It's powerful symbolism. The ark is right at the heart of the camp. Most holy place, right at the heart of the tabernacle. Here is God dwelling with his people. He's the God who draws near. Noel Gallagher, the, the singer, best known today, I think, for being a Manchester City supporter, but he was a singer once. And he said a few years ago, few of us practice any faith. But we're after something. And then this very honest interview, he described how on occasion he'd go out into the garden and he'd cry up into the night sky, come on then, give me a sign, show me. And there's a man who's seeking, sensing a void. And he's not alone. God made human beings to relate to him. But since human beings turned away from God, we're cut off from that relationship and there's a sense of something missing. And God is not hiding. This is the amazing reality. We're hiding from Him. But God and His grace come seeking. And so He doesn't stay up in the mountain, Mount Sinai. He comes down to dwell amongst His people. He doesn't stay up in heaven. Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that He comes down to earth. And you remember the the amazing description of the Gospels in Luke as he, the Lord Jesus Christ enters Jericho. There's Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He's a small man, we're told. So he goes up onto a tree to try and get a view of Jesus with the crowd all around. All these people, a vast throng. And there's this man, no doubt a hated man because he was a tax collector. I guess everyone else would have shunned him. But here's Jesus, he sees him. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. Maybe you're someone who you feel other people shun you. They don't really want to get to know you. Jesus is not hiding. Jesus came to earth. And he wants to live with us. That's the God who draws near. It's an amazing privilege. And so Moses, as he receives these instructions up the mountain, must have been so excited. Here is Israel entering into a special covenant relationship with God, likened to a marriage. Here are the instructions, if you like, for the marital home. And he's assuming that once he goes down the mountain, he'll build a home and God will come in and intimacy will be enjoyed between God and his people. But little does he know, while he's up the mountain receiving these instructions, as we saw last week, chapters 32 to 34, sandwich these instructions about the tabernacle sandwich this horrific description of Israel's sin. The building of the golden calf, which Pete last week compared to committing adultery on your wedding day. Chapter 24, the covenant agreed. Yes, we're going to be married. He goes up the mountain, receives instructions for the marital home, and there they are down below committing adultery, creating 
an idol. Surely when Moses comes down, the assumption must be, this is going to be the end. God is going to tear up the instructions and say, I will never live with these people. But we saw last week, amazing grace. Because he's the priest. Moses, as it were, has a mediatorial role. And God graciously does build the tabernacle, 35 onwards. And at the end of chapter 40, we heard it read, the cloud came down. God's presence filled that tabernacle. And as the people traveled around in the wilderness, the cloud was there with them. This is not just a temporary visit. God is permanently with his people. He's the God who draws near. But then two more things, more briefly. Second, nonetheless, he's the God who keeps his distance. There's a a weird contradiction, it feels, in the instructions. Built up, right at the beginning, 25 verse 8, in the fact that this dwelling, this relationship with God, this is God's home, it's a sanctuary. A holy place. Because he's the holy God. And how can a holy God dwell among them or amongst us? He's holy. And we're far from holy. Back at the beginning of Exodus, Moses meets God at the burning bush. And the voice says, Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Or as the people arrive at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, there's a command to the people to keep their distance. And if anyone so much as touches the foot of the mountain, they'll die. Well, chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed and the glory of God came down. And as they looked up at the mountain, it looked like a consuming fire. He is the God of blazing perfection. It's a great privilege to have God living with you. But it's a dangerous thing. Just imagine living in a nuclear plant. There'd be no entry signs everywhere. Danger warnings everywhere. Places that only authorized persons can go, and only then with protective clothing. And as you read through these instructions, that's the kind of mood. Yes, God, God is near, but he's also set apart. He's holy. So there's to be no easy access to him. Although God is in the middle of the camp, most are not allowed anywhere near. Only the Levites, Aaron's sons, to enter the tabernacle and the Levites are camped around. It's a kind of human buffer zone. Only the priests can enter the tabernacle, but they're only able to serve in that way after a series of consecration rituals, most of them involving blood. And it's, it's gruesome stuff. 29 and verse 19, take the other ram And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take some of its blood and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. Then splash blood against the sides of the altar and take some of the blood on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on their garments. So this blood being shed, what's going on there? Because they deserve to die. Because they're sinful and they're approaching the holy God. And the judgment must be death. 
But God allows an animal to be killed instead, and the blood of the animal is presented before God to appease his wrath and then placed around their person as an assurance that they can enter, but only because blood has been shed. Even then they can't relax. They're still sinful. So death is a constant danger. And the whole instructions around the priesthood are reminding them of the danger that they're in. 28 verse 35. Aaron must wear a special garment. And when when he ministers, he must wear it. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Or verse 42 and 43 of chapter 28, make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. Protective clothing. And before they enter, as they go into the courtyard, first thing they see, altar of burnt offering. Don't go close to God without a sacrifice. And then a basin. Don't go close to God because you're dirty. You need to be cleansed. We need this instruction. Because how easily we just assume that of course we can be friends with God. We have a very high view of ourselves. We excuse our guilt. We deny our guilt. And a very low view of God. It's an easy thing. I was just thinking this week of an occasion when um, at school we were preparing for a big school service and we had a, a chapel and we were preparing and practicing the songs. It was a hymn or I think actually a psalm and we were singing the psalms with one verse one side and another verse the other side and just have a bit of fun we started shouting them to see if we could be louder than the other person, the other side. And I can still remember the chaplain who we, we couldn't get a sense that he really believed very much at all. But then suddenly he got up and he shouted, Blasphemy! Well, that shut us up. Blasphemy. And there was a sense of fear, at that stage, fear of him. But we should have feared God. And here we were singing about the things of God without any respect for God. And this architecture reminds us God is to be feared. It is no easy thing to come into his presence. Our God is a consuming fire. Now here's this strange duality in the Old Testament. He's a God who draws near, comes down the mountain, lives amongst his people, but you dare not get too close. He's the God who keeps his distance. What do we do with all this? Well, finally, third, he's the God who designs. Chapter 25 and verse 9, that verse we're taking all these points from, or these two verses, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And it's stressed again and again that Moses follows this pattern. And as the design is put into practice, right at the end of chapter 40, again and again and again, we're told that Moses does exactly what he's told. Chapter 40, verse 19. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent 
as the Lord commanded him. And those words come again and again in chapter 40. As the Lord commanded him. So as we draw to a close, just flick on, if you've got a Bible, to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, page 1206. We're going to close our time briefly in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, page 1206. The writer of the Hebrews, speaking about the priests of the Old Testament, says, verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so the tabernacle in the Old Covenant was a copy, as it were, of heavenly realities. And it's a pattern that will one day be fulfilled. God is not just the architect of the tabernacle, he is the architect of history. That tent was never intended to be the ultimate meeting place between God and his people. It's a model that points to a greater reality. It's preparing for the coming of Jesus. At Christmas time, we'll hear the words of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, echoing the words of our verse. Made his dwelling among us, more literally, tabernacled among us. And Jesus was here on earth. Where's the tabernacle or the temple? Don't look at that building in Jerusalem. Look at Jesus. If people are to meet with God, they don't go to that holy place. They come to this holy, divine Son of God. And this book, the book of Hebrews, is written to those who were Jews. And they've been used to going to the temple. When we looked at the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, I, I visualized it like this. There they were with all their fellow Jews, and every Sabbath they'd be heading in the direction of the temple. That's where they're looking to. But then they hear about Jesus. And the way to God was ultimately not in that place. That's a model. But the real thing has come. They've come to Jesus. And that means they end up going in a completely different direction. And they're going no longer on the main road in the direction where everyone else is traveling, they're going in the opposite direction. They go off the main street, down a little side alley, and they meet with a few Christians in a back room. And some of them are beginning to waver and thinking, it's so costly. We're getting persecuted for this. It'd be so much easier just to join the crowd and go back to the temple which models the tabernacle on earth. And the writer's saying, no, don't do that because that's just a model. What you've got in Christ is better by far, chapter 9, verse 11. Having described the, well, I should, verse 7 and 8, having described the old tabernacle, which was wonderful, verse 7, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The door remained closed. Only one man went in once a year. The door is closed. 
But now, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. In other words, Jesus died on a cross. He offered his blood and he presented his blood not in an earthly tabernacle, but in heaven itself. And the result is, the door is wide open for all those who have received the blood of Christ. For sheltering in that blood, saying, I don't deserve to be friends with God. I don't deserve to enter the presence of God in myself, but I'm trusting in Jesus who died for me. The result is, we can enter, as it were, heaven itself. In the light of all this background, listen again to chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. You've seen those words, some of you, many times. Have you audibly gasped? Because if you know anything about the tabernacle and about the holiness of God, about, as it were, living in a nuclear power plant, that you dare not go close all that protection, all the blood that had to be shed, and even then only one man going into the most holy place once a year and then leaving. And now he's saying to everyone, you've got confidence to go into the most holy place, not a mere copy on earth, but heaven itself. Not because God is blind to your sin, because Jesus took it upon himself when he died. Therefore, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Don't hang back. God knows your sin, but he died for it. Make the most of the amazing privileges we have in these new covenant days of living with Christ day by day with his Holy Spirit in us, looking forward to being with him in his presence forever. As we look at the old covenant, we should be able to receive an even greater insight into the wonders of the privilege we have in the new covenant. Let's rejoice. Let's make the most of this privilege. Let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see through this picture more of the horror of our sin, more of the awesome nature of your holiness, more of the wonder of your grace that we might delight in the privileges we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.